in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Nathan Lutz. How are you doing, sir? I am doing fantastic. You know, it is so appropriate today that we are doing something science fiction related because SpaceX has landed the first one of its Starship prototypes, SN15, and I am very excited about that. A little bit of a fire, but you know what? I am all okay with that, just so they get one on the ground and then eventually we can get to the moon on one of those things. So uh, I'm excited. Wow. And let's make it a, a third Pittsburgh podcast across the board. It's a straight reunion from the 2001 A Space Odyssey episode. That's, a, that's an early one. Go back and download that if you want. But joining us today, Mr. Benjamin Johnson. How you doing, sir? I'm well. Good to meet you guys again in uh, the virtual world this time. Yeah, hopefully before long, these things won't have to be socially distanced anymore and they'll be right there in person but uh yeah doing it safe safe podcasting safe is great it's better than abstinence i know that <laughs> no podcasting doesn't work i think it that's kind of relative <laughs> all right so today ben let's get people just a little feel for you uh, what is the movie you liked as a kid but came back to as an adult and it did not hold up Oh, unfortunately, I will go with He-Man, which is Masters of the Universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I thought that that was like one of the greatest movies growing up and then saw it again really recently. And <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. It was unique. It's a unique experience. I think a lot of the actors didn't know what was going on. <laughs> so better left where it was, perhaps, on that one. Yeah. Dolph didn't know what was going on in that, because he sp he didn't really speak in that, I realized. He, he had very few speaking lines, and it was a lot of grunting, and it was one of his earlier works. Dolph Smash! Yeah. And that was pretty much the limit of his English. Wow, so uh, Nathan... What about you? Different era now. What is the movie that you saw as a kid, but maybe you wish you had left it there? I'm just going to go for a really obvious answer here, where I think my siblings were old enough to recognize what a travesty this was. But uh, at the time, I was like, oh man, that was so cool. R2-D2 was dragging C-3PO's head around an arena, and they were making funny jokes, and it was great. You know, years later, I, uh, I watched Attack of the Clones, and I'm like, hmm. You know, this movie could do with some uh, major parts taken out of it and maybe replaced with nothing would be better. <laughs> yeah, so the Attack of the Clones, great choice. I fully endorse that one. 
uh, I'm gonna get some flack from this from Chad and Brian later, but I'm gonna say it anyway. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, and I'm not referring to the more recent ones. I'm referring to the ones from the uh, late '80s and early '90s. Now I love the cartoon, so I'm not knocking that at all. But the live action movies, all three of them, who Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live action, probably better left where they are. <laughs> I would concur with you on that, Ben. What's the last movie you saw? The Star Wars Ewok Adventure. Is this a special or? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a unique object. I don't know what inspired it. I wanted something Star Wars-y on Disney. I wanted to use my Disney Plus. So I went in there and I, I just was watching it. It was late at night and I was almost going to bed, so... You know, Star Wars and specials has not generated a hugely successful set of uh, filmography. No, no, it was weird. I'm not going to lie. It was it was strange. I mean, it wasn't even a real movie. It was one of those weird spinoffs of Star Wars in the 80s. We will allow it. What about you, Nathan? What's the last movie you saw not for the podcast? You know, I was also randomly trawling Disney Plus for whatever it was. I'm on a little bit of a rewatch the Marvel movies sort of sort of kick right now. I decided to take a little bit of a detour over into the Fox X-Men movies that I hadn't watched all of, and I finally watched the X-Men Apocalypse movie, which was not nearly as bad as I was expecting based yeah. on the reviews at the time. It was definitely a movie that was trying to do something epic and then it all kinds of kind of falls flat because everything is very sort of constructed however it's also a fun flick okay okay i you're nicer to that one than i am and i'll for me the last one that i saw was tree of life from 2011 It's a it's an ambitious, artistic, well scored movie like two thousand one. It's a conceptual experience of the large scale universe that is life. So it's about the circle of life, but it's told through the story of one relatively insignificant family in the nineteen fifties. Gosh, that's an interesting movie to pick apart. It was an Oscar nominated, and I can see why. I hadn't seen anything quite this ambitious since Boyhood, which Link later did. Wow. Sounds good. Nathan, what movie are we going to do today? We are working on another member of the Sci-Fi Movie Club. This is Sunshine, released in 2007. Yes. So Sunshine stars Killian Murphy, Rose Byrne, Cliff Curtis, Chris Evans, Troy Garrity, Hiroyuki Sanada, Benedict Wong, and Michelle Yeoh. It is a movie that unfortunately doesn't make back all that it was put into it, so it loses money. It grosses $3.6 million for the year. It uh, comes in at 217th, and that's not, a, that's not great. It comes in just behind the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, and it comes ahead of Om Santi Om. And if you're wondering to know what the highest-grossing movie was in 2007, it was Spider-Man 3, which is another movie that's probably best left where it was. IMDb gives a rating of 7.2 to Sunshine. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes give it a 77%, and the audience score gives it a 73%. It is a winner of the 2007 British Independent Film Awards, and it was nominated for Best Actor as well. And 
it gets a Saturn Award nomination for Best Science Fiction Film, of which it doesn't win, but this movie goes largely unnoticed. But when you look at and see Best Science Fiction Films of all time, this is a movie that quite often pops up on a top 100 sci-fi list, and it's been one I've wanted to see for a while, but it's my first time to it. But Ben, let's hear from you. What's your background with this one? Had you seen it before? When did you see it? I had seen this before, and this was a repeat for me. I had seen this. The first time I had seen this was, I don't know, on a random, again, just a random Netflix years ago. And the movie was very solid, and it remains very solid to today, both the message and the acting and for a science fiction film i think the special effects and everything still remain solid for today even though it was produced in 2007. nathan what about you is this your first time to it this is indeed my first time watching sunshine i definitely feel like this feels like effects that really hold up well today a lot of sequences that that hold up really well today and I'm not sure that I've seen a better sort of spacesuit scene since this movie came out, so I think it holds up pretty well. Hmm, the uh, fart scene inside the spacesuit in Rocket Man, starring Harlan Williams, didn't do it for you more than this? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Wasn't painted gold. <laughs> All right, so uh, this is, as I mentioned before, this is my first time to it, and boy, I was quite pleased with this one. I watched this one several times. I definitely have done it three times, for sure. And it, it it has clearly taken me by storm. I loved it. I really, really like Alex Garland, the guy who wrote Ex Machina, this, 28 Days Later. This was no exception. I'm quite a fan of Alex Garland's work, and I liked everything about it. So I can't wait to get in this one. But I should let everybody know that there are spoilers that lie ahead. So we will be back after these messages. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals like you what happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up you get the classic film jerks podcast find the classic film jerks podcast on all the major platforms all right we're back and this is your final warning there will be spoilers that lie ahead nathan for those who haven't seen sunshine since 2007 do you want to refresh people's memory in the light of a dying sun, Earth's nations came together to send their most brilliant astronauts on a daring mission to restart its fusion. That mission failed. This time, they, mu they must turn to their eight most cinematic astronauts to finish the job. When they discover the derelict hulk of the first mission, they resolve to salvage its payload, doubling their chances of success. But when they investigate the ship, they discover that the mission didn't just fail, it was sabotaged. Now they must struggle to survive and finish the mission as the sun-crazy first captain hunts them down one by one. 
Finally, the remaining crew ride the nuclear payload down into the sun itself and watch firsthand the rebirth of their star. As the webcomic XKCD puts it, it's daylight savings time. Never fall back. (laughs) So, Ben, you're the most experienced with this movie, Sunshine. So what is Sunshine all about for you? I think you can take this movie from a lot of different aspects. The science fiction aspect of it works just from the fact of like the environmental slash physical, like the sun dying. Like this is a possibility, right? And then you have the earth working together to take all of the nuclear material off earth and send it to the sun to like create a new star within the star i mean that's fabulous and then you have the cgi aspect of it which really works well i don't know it depends you can take it from whatever aspect you kind of want to look at it at but it was just fun and refreshing and kind of a great all-around science fiction movie yeah, Nathan, what about you? Like a lot of science fic- fiction is obviously trying to send a message and reflect on its time. I do you feel like this is a movie that does that? You know, to me this is a this is the kind of science fiction that reflects on how different people see all these phenomena, what what these crazy big giant forces of the universe mean to people. So this is a movie where each of the characters has a very different approach to what they think of things. So you have our sort of lead Robert Kappa who sees things as a physics problem he needs to solve. You have people like James Mace played by Chris Evans, who is looking at things as the sun is there to protect and sort of sustain life on earth. So he's always looking for the, the sort of human connection of what he can relate it to. You have, than people like the captain and the doctor who are in a way enamored with just the sun itself as this crazy object. And you also have, of course, then people like the villain pinbacker who comes onto the ship ranting and raving about the sort of godlike experience that he has with these things. So you get these very different perspectives about what scientific phenomena actually mean to people and how they impact their lives and that's how i see this movie it's interesting writer alex garland wrote that a lot of the themes of this movie or the story relate to atheism meeting god it's not necessarily something danny boyle the director wanted to portray as hard as alex garland the writer wanted but it is still very much there and so uh, I'll skip straight to the ambiguous ending because the first time I watched this, and I think I even texted you guys ahead of time, I was just like, what was with that ending where the sun just kind of stops? But it, it's it's important in that, in that moment, you have this sunburst coming at him, and then you have this uh, electromagnetic-type physical reaction that was going off, and you have the science behind him, and he is at the convergence of these of the science meeting the natural power of the sun and he's stuck in that moment and he reaches his arms out and much like Icarus has his, his wings burned, the name of the ship is the Icarus, uh, he is consumed and burned in that moment. But the movie stops right there because it's that handshake. And I saw a lot of Penbacker as being 
kind of this fundamentalist, extremist way of seeing things. He's clearly viewing the sun as a deity, and he has kind of gone beyond and into a very destructive, reductive way of thinking about it. And so uh, it was interesting to see a crew of scientists, and to your point, uh, Nathan, each of them experienced these things at different levels. Like, you know, their medical doctor, played by Cliff Curtis's character, Searle, he's like obsessed with the sun. And I think in time, he might have actually become like Penbagger. And then you've got other people like Mace, who's just very matter of fact, logical, do what needs to be done. So it's interesting, like you said, Nathan, it, it kind of is a reflection of humankind where we fall on the spectrum. Those themes are still there. They're, they're muted. Uh, Danny Boyle wanted this, uh, this film to be accessible and not too religious, not too statement with that. But I still think that that, that stuff's there. And I think that's really good stuff in science fiction when, when, they, when they do have those, those themes going on. Yeah, I always think that that sort of thing is really interesting to explore how people are seeing this. Unfortunately for me, when you bring religion as an idea into science fiction, I tend to feel that it's often brought up as a very sort of straw man type of argument. It's portrayed in a very, very one-dimensional way where people who are following on that side are often portrayed in science fiction as really having no other sort of capacity for self-motivation, self-thought, or, you know, scientific interest or curiosity. So it's a little bit unfortunate to me in that way that we end up with that character Pinbacker and not really have any other sort of opposing, or not necessarily opposing, but counterexamples of people who are religious but have a healthier aspect, more realistic aspect on the way that they see the world. That's something that is explored in much better ways in a lot of other science fiction. Uh, the Expanse is a great example, TV show that has a minister character who is very pragmatic and very real world, and it evolves with the times, but still keeps to her faith in a way that seems realistic and natural in that world, and isn't really a caricature in the way that some of this movie works. So I can kind of see where the director is coming from here, where you worry that writers who are trying to make a big statement like that aren't really looking much deeper than surface level into the issue. And that's sort of my big criticism of this movie. Interesting. Do you feel like Kappa is more balanced, though? As I mentioned at the end, like he is this bridging link and he sees the beauty of the sun. At one point, Cassie says, you know, and he says, I think it's I think it will be beautiful. And like so there's this I think this perhaps romantic appreciation for it, as well as, you know, he is still the scientist at the same time. I don't know. Ben, do you feel like Kappa maybe is maybe what Nathan's searching for in that balance? I think so. But I think you have to kind of give way to just the dynamics of writing and movie making. I think the director here is just trying to make subtle kind of, well, maybe not so subtle characters. He doesn't want to play so much with the subtlety, but he wants to make, he wants to make bold statements. So Pinbecker is, he doesn't want to give him necessarily a lot to play with as far as the character development and he only has you know two hours to to really portray this person 
Kappa is is definitely the link between the two. I mean, because he brings this kind of compassion to the religion that you're kind of alluding to. It's kind of based in curiosity, I think. Like a childlike curiosity almost. Yeah, that's what I kind of meant. Like it's it's like a romantic kind of like yeah know, yeah like yeah nathan is this by chance is this changing your stance on that a little bit maybe or are you still kind of just see kappa not filling that balanced role that you would like to see i think that if you want that to be part of the statement you're making in a movie you got to make it explicit and i agree that kappa is definitely filling part of the role where you know he and some of the other characters are enamored with the idea of what they're doing. They're doing this incredible thing and bringing this incredible technology to fix something that's been what has allowed humankind and all life on Earth to exist. And they really are enamored with the beauty of this sort of force of nature that way. But I never get enough characterization from especially Kappa, but any of the others, to really flesh that out or make that explicit there's a lot that you have to there's a lot of handshake that you have to do with the movie in terms of you know trying to do that whereas pinbacker on the other hand everything that he does is over the top and explicit so you know if he was a little bit less of a caricature i think this would be okay for me got it one of the interesting thing I thought was uh, Ben's, Ben mentioned that they, this could happen it's interesting they did consult some scientists on this but the sun will burn out years and years, like 4 billion years from now. And as its fuel gets used up, it actually is going to get really hot, maybe uninhabitably hot here on Earth. And as this film suggests, it's actually getting colder. So I didn't see this in there as much, but apparently more in the writing that there's a dark energy that's kind of infected the sun called the, a cue ball. And uh, they're using a super systematic nucleus of leftover Big Bang particles to try and knock that cue ball out of there to let the sun do what it's supposed to do at that point. It's kind of funny, this mission of these various astronauts from around the world coming together, I couldn't help but think of Armageddon, which was in this case a giant asteroid that was coming that would like destroy Earth that they had to go face. But in this case, it's kind of similar. They're taking a large explosive at a threat it's perilous and they may or may not come back. And it's kind of funny that Armageddon's presented in a completely different like summer blockbuster thriller kind of way. <laughs> and here we have something that's uh, presented in a, mm, it's a bleak, <laughs> it's it's a bleak. We've already been talking about some of these heavy themes and stuff like that. So it's kind of funny when I watched this, I was like, oh, this is like Armageddon if it were really serious. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, don't they say, like, all the great stories have already been told? They're just, like, prefabricated, changed the trappings. And and each of these different movie makers goes in and out of style in terms of the number of jokes per minute that they have to make during each movie. <laughs> yeah, so if you want to know what Michael Bay would do with Sunshine, watch Armageddon. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about having these sort of not really in the script explanations in the background for some of the scientific phenomena here because you can tell that someone sort of wanted to do some science here or thought about some of it in a way but that 
someone else was like, eh, we don't really need all this stuff. Let's leave this on the cutting room table. We don't need to explain all of this. And I think that really hurts this movie because there's a bunch of things in here that I think from a nitpicking standpoint would be very easy to kind of go into that just make very little sense with the science of it that, you know, both, both the sun, but also the idea that a ship in space would stop dead in its tracks randomly and that another ship could rendezvous it rendezvous with it along the same path in the way there's just a lot of orbital mechanics mistakes that are that are made here. oh you're about to go neil degrasse tyson on us here i'm not i'm, I'm not going to quite go down that path right now i might come back to it later during certain superlatives what that is you get into the whole overlying premise of the movie is that solving problems that humans can actually affect. Like, would humans be able to actually affect a problem with our sun? And the question is, or the answer is no, we wouldn't be able to. I mean, we can't even affect, you know, storms that happen annually, seasonally on our own planet. So... Movies like this are totally, for the most part, fictitious. Hey, we got some time to work it out. This is in 2057, Ben. <laughs> okay. Give us 50 years. Or 30 years. Just going to say, we're, we're actually getting closer to that. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, we wouldn't be able to affect the sun. I mean, there's no way. Yeah. Yeah. For that reason, think of this very much in the way that I think of the Neil Stevenson book, Seven Eves, where something terrible happens to the moon one day and it's never really explained. The characters periodically ask what the heck it could have been, but no one ever gets an answer because that's not the point. It's not, it's not the point of what the movie's going for. The movie's asking certain specific questions that are driving at the human relationship to these crazy phenomena and the kinds of stresses that you would be under if you were asked to save the human race when fixing this and the kinds of ideas that you might have around these things. And if you get too bogged down in nitpicking the way that the science works, it's, it's really not worthwhile, especially for this kind of movie. Yeah, I, I, I'm able to suspend all disbelief. I mean, there are definitely, yes, there are a slew of them online. You can go through them of things that don't work that way. But it's bigger than than just a rescue mission for the sun. Uh, to me, and I want to talk about this too, is the dynamic of the crew. As Nathan pointed out, these people are each coming from different facets of personality types coming together and their motives and stuff. We don't hear their backstory. It's interesting. Uh, they actually wrote. Gia Malevich, one of the producers there, helped write character backgrounds and handed them to each of the stories to people none of this is ever mentioned in the film but it helped give them identities to these characters that they would behave in certain ways some of those were really interesting ben what were some of the interesting crew to crew kind of personality dynamics relationships and conflicts that you found interesting as far as the characters go with their relationship do you thought well i really like First of all, the interaction of Trey and kind of his story about how he kind of took on the failure of the maneuver of it, like it being his fault. And he kind of like sacrificed himself. I thought that was the word that comes to mind is gallant and unexpected. But I guess it was like a cultural thing. And I guess that's what the movie kind of kind of like an Asian kind of 
in my I don't want to be like <laughs> stereotypical or anything, but I think that's my kind of a far eastern thing. It kind of demonstrated the fact that each of these people came from different backgrounds and it's exactly what you said. It illustrated kind of their personalities. Yeah, Nathan, what crew dynamics for you were most interesting for you in this? I guess for me, what's interesting is some of these scenes where different characters are in the sunroom or the sort of observation room, and they're sort of almost adrenaline junkieing their way up the level of brightness on this star that they're approaching. And it's kind of interesting to see how different of them are either like seeing it in an almost meditational way, like the captain does, where he sort of sits with it pretty bright. He's wearing sunglasses. He's just sort of, all right, yep, give me the report. I'm just going to sit here and it's going to be really bright versus other people like the doctor, as you mentioned, who's a little bit obsessed with the with with this star. And he's just like, oh, I'm going to push it as far as I can. Take it to 3.1%. Ah! I'm pretty sure Penn Becker started that way. I'm pretty sure he started that way too. I mean, both, so both the doctor and the captain sort of seem, seem that way to me in that they're both seem a little bit questionable about things. But Cassie's like afraid of it. Like she has nightmares of it on a consistent basis. I won't say healthy fear, but like a respectful fear of the power yeah. that they're marching towards. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. You got to wonder what was Pinbacker doing the whole time that, you know, he's he, he was on Icarus 1 while the rest of the crew was dead. And they didn't all... really explain how, how he survived. Well, I mean, think about it. There's plenty of food and oxygen when you kill everybody off. So if you have any ability to regenerate food in that garden room, I mean, he's got... And plus, I believe they said it was seven years apart between missions. So, I mean, I think that he's stretching it out by simply having killed off everybody. And I think the ship was designed to get them back home as well, well and there they, was no they return found, to it. they found like they found all that oxygen and food but it seemed like he couldn't interact with it like i thought he was mr living fire if he moved through the ship wouldn't he set the food on fire and everything I don't think there was any science fantasy of that nature actually going on. I think that that was just a directorial sort of horror movie. I think he was deformed. Sort of style. He just survived like his skin was permanently seared or something. I mean, yeah. For seven years. Yeah, just like you see with uh, Searle. He's sunbathing to an extreme. And yeah, his skin's clearly damaged. And then he just lived on that ship? Yeah. Yeah. I think that he was hanging out with the dead crew in the observation room the whole time. Yeah, he wanted to be alone with his God, as he as he referred to it. Like, I'm the yeah. last man with God. It was like some sort of like hyper-accelerated metaphysical state or something. I just think it was simply eating and sunbathing for him every day for seven years. <laughs> really? Yeah. There's definitely a question... Was there something in the sun that was some sort of a creature? But I don't think that that is the answer in the end. I think that this really boils down to, no, it's just humans, and it's just how humans see things, and there's no need to have any sort of 
metaphysical extraterrestrial explanation for this. I am with you, Nathan. I, I don't think he's a mutant now. Yeah, like you said, just classic horror movie stuff. But there's some other great crew dynamics here. I really liked the conflict between Kappa and Mace. Kappa takes too long to send his message home when they can make their last communications, and Mace is angry at him. You can kind of tell they didn't get along to begin with, and there's a there's a brawl between them. Later on, Mace is quick to call out Kappa, saying, you made a bad call, and this isn't what I wanted to do, and they get in another fight there. At the end, they team together and they get stuff done. Mace always chooses to protect Kappa because he's the highest priority. Again, dedication to the mission. That conflict yet dedication to the mission in Mace's character was, to me, one of the most interesting, evolving things that you weren't sure how it was going to go. He was ready to take out a crew member at a moment's notice if need be. If He would have killed Trey in order to make the mission work. He is all about the mission. He's very driven. I felt like Mace's character was a really good straw to stir the drink up. You get those things too, where like Searle's kind of off on his own, like maybe slowly losing his mind. Cap is just not accepted by the rest of the crew. And then similarly, we have Corazon. She cares more about the plants than she does the people. It 100% reads, you know, she loves her plants. I do love Corazon, but I don't know. I kind of disagree with your assessment of Mason Kappa. I feel it's more like, they're more like brothers. Was your impression that it wasn't so much that Mace was ever specifically... Like, he often blamed Kappa as a straw man in some of these sorts of issues because Kappa was the one who was sort of forced to make certain decisions that Mace disagreed with, but it seemed like it was almost like a... It was because they were maybe closer, and it was because that mace was having sort of an internal personal difficulty with uh with the uh quarantine that he was being effectively put in for several years i don't know i think he had a click with with corazon and i think when i think their leader was or Kaneda, i think he did bring everybody together so i think that's another one of those things when you lose this very got it together you know comforting presence he is their leader when they lose him there really is no replacement for him upgrading harvey into the lead is uh that's miserable that's a very bad that's a very bad chain of command there so i just thought that even watching the crew before canada goes away and is burned up in the sun versus after that's another one of those dominoes that changes the game for the crew a little bit like alien in that way only Alien had a yeah. much better second-in-command with uh, Ripley ready to step up. Yes. This this ship could have used her. Yeah, I wasn't joking in my uh, in, in in my recap of the movie when when you know I I feel like maybe the uh, the best and the brightest were actually on the previous crew, and uh, you know with one exception of the captain, and uh, and this was what they had left. An interesting thing they all the actors lived together for two weeks to build this chemistry for what they would be on the ship. Killian Murphy worked with a leading physicist and shadowed him. Brian Cox is the name of the physicist. He went to the CERN facility in Switzerland. They attended lectures. They had to do a lot of reading. There was just a lot of work that Danny Boyle, the director, put this crew through. And do you feel like that paid dividends for the movie, Ben? I definitely agree. I mean, it it paid off in the acting and in the... Uh geek speak of the movie i got lost at all the right places and i just crossed my fingers and gave it up to the geek gods i i'm sure nathan followed it all and cross-referenced and verified it 
Yeah, it was it was great. And going to the uh, CGI and everything again, it was it was really spectacular, I thought. Starting essentially generating a star within a star, it's monumental. It was a great aspect for a movie. Um, and then you have such a, a diverse cast. I mean, you have all these, at the time, these actors who were probably not well-known or up-and-coming. I mean, even like Chris Evans, Mr. Captain America, was just in a supporting role at the time. I thought it was just really refreshing, like Michelle Yeoh. From, she's pretty popular in Star Trek right now. It was just really fun to see these really well-known actors now in their these roles that they weren't real no, really well-known for. Nathan, are there any fun casting comments that you wanted to share? I will just say I thought that it's very funny for me to see an actor who I mainly think of as Scarecrow from the Christopher Nolan Batman movies to be a leading good guy character. It is it is just a just a weird bit of a whiplash for me to, to uh hear that voice coming out of a character who's actually totally sane and rational. This is interesting. Killian Murphy playing Robert Kappa is very funny. Ah, have you done 28 Days Later? I have not. Ah, see, I, I know him well from that as well. So, which is another Danny Boyle directed and Alex Garland written movie. So they brought their protagonist back from a movie that, this movie lost money, but that movie was done before and it cost less and they made a ton of money on it. So they kind of had the keys to the car and then they wrecked it. But they definitely had the same writer, the same director and the same lead actor in it. So it was kind of bringing the, bringing the band back together. I thought it was interesting that the original captain was going to be American, but then they changed that to make it a more international style team. The scientists and the astronauts that they were talking about ahead of time urged the director to make Canada an Asian character. It was interesting that Rose Byrne, I thought Troy was kind of a rough movie, but Danny Boyle saw something in her performance there and... He liked her, and so he went to bat for her. Most impressively, Danny Boyle said that Michelle Yeoh, who played uh, Corazon, the uh, garden or the uh, botanist, Danny told Michelle that she could have any part of the cast, regardless of gender or how it was written, and she chose Corazon, the biologist. That's really cool that she chose... I wouldn't say it's like a minor character, but she nailed it. She was right for the role, but that's how much faith Danny Boyle had in Michelle Yeoh. That makes me wish certain things regarding the recast variety, but uh, we can get back to that. <laughs> yeah. And hey, you just said you'd watched X-Men Apocalypse, uh, Nathan, with Oscar Isaac. I don't know if you have an appetite for Oscar Isaac to be in this movie. Oscar Isaac actually auditioned for the film, and he did not get any of the parts, and he was so taken by the Alex Garland script, he was crushed when he didn't get it. And when they, when Alex Garland takes on his directorial debut, as well as he wrote the movie, Ex Machina, he vigorously went in to audition for it. And there's like only three main roles in that movie. And as you know, Oscar Isaac was selected to be an Ex Machina. So he, he got his uh, redemption and second chance. And he's also in Annihilation, which is another Alex Garland movie as well. Yes, definitely. Definitely great in Ex Machina. That's a, that is a quite spectacular small scale movie. Ben, so you've done Ex Machina, right? Yeah. And you've done 28 Days Later? 
28 Days Later is brilliant. And you've done Annihilation? No. Okay. With the works that you have seen, how would you say that this effort of Alex Garland's writing is in comparison, particularly to 28 Days Later and Ex Machina? I think it kind of follows the same themes. You mean in terms of them like being kind of bleak? Yes, but they have underlying kind of little tones of joy and kind of like little notes of happiness, I would say. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah. There's humanity in, the, in each of them. Yeah. But they, all, but they all three kind of show the ugly side of people, too. I wouldn't say ugly. I would say reality. That's a good... Okay, that, and that's a fair way of saying it. And they all respond in a critic crisis situation, which brings out, that, like you said, that reality of the... Of life. Of life, yeah. Yeah. Nathan, what about you? Well, uh, at least the way Hollywood sees it. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Nathan, what about you? Uh, Alex Garland went through 35 drafts to get to this final one. Now, having only seen Ex Machina of the Garland works here, unless you've played Halo, what do you think about uh, Alex Garland's writing in comparison to these movies? Because he directs Ex Machina, and whereas Danny Boyle's directing 28 Days Later and Sunshine for him, do you detect a difference and when he's the director of his own story or not. I think my main comment there is I think that this is too big a cast. I don't think that we explored as much or as deeply in the characters as I think we could have if we'd had more time with, you know, any five or four of them. Uh, One of the amazing things about Ex Machina is the degree to which we get to experience the sort of descent into madness, how that movie progresses. And madness is probably the wrong word for that movie. It is a little bit of being hoodwinked by the reality or real seemingness of something, and then realizing too late that you've made a horrible, horrible mistake. Um, But in that movie, you really get to see the emotional journey of you know especially one character through that whole thing and it happens in a way that i feel doesn't really happen in this movie so you crave that connection i think that in a movie like this where for me again it's exploring how people experience these things i think that i want to spend more time with an individual and see how they change their perception as time goes on and that's not to say that that does not happen i think that it's clear that we get to see complexity in characters we get to see different faces of them brought out by different situations i think that james mace character is a perfect example of that where i don't know that he's changing as a character so much as we're seeing the different responses that he would have in different situations where if he disagrees with the decision you make he's going to be very mad at you but at the end of the day he's going to make sure that the mission succeeds i don't think there was a change there so much as the situation changed around him and we got to see a different side of him and i think that that is really the most interesting to me character change that we see all the other characters as far as i see we just kind of see how the situation affects them and not really or how they react to situations as opposed to being changed by them well that's valid criticism for sure 
that's those are all good points. I still enjoyed it, but I definitely see where you're coming from with all of those things. So, yeah, I'm not saying it wasn't enjoyable. I'm just noting things about the characters. No, it's a very good point. And I do want to correct myself. Earlier I said it's science meeting God. Garland said that this movie is a psychologically minded science fiction film. Uh, and in he, to him, it was about atheism confronting and meeting God. That does change my words from earlier in the podcast slightly. I still think the conversation we had still holds up. But I just wanted to correct myself. Yeah. Yeah. One fun thing is Alex Garland revealed that the character Harvey, who's not the nicest character on the crew, I would say he's the least noble of them. He he named him after Harvey Weinstein. Uh, he said this in an interview in 2018 that uh, he was often rude and snappy and he didn't like his attitude and how he treated other crew members and how he carried himself with a superiority complex and was arrogant. So this character that he was crafting after that, it just popped into his head that this this character's name should be Harvey. As you know, in real life, Harvey Weinstein uh, did some bad stuff. So if you make Alex Garland mad, he's going to write a negative character in one of his stories and name him after you. One way into the history books. Nathan, Danny Boyle as a director, you've commented on on that, but let's talk about his style and how he presents things. Do you like the look and feel of Sunshine? You mentioned earlier the tours of CERN and the discussions with and the discussion with physicists that were had during this movie. And for me, that comes across less in the actual sort of, you know, the science gobbledygook that comes out of people's mouths, which is, you know, always good to have in movies and you want it and you want to hear it and it's fun. But what really excels in this movie is the sense of the reality of the spaceship that you're in. Whatever you think about the actual design of the thing and any of that stuff, there's a texture to it. It's not just that it's grimy, it's that it feels lived in. It feels like an actual scientific lab, something that someone who visited CERN and saw the wires coming out of the walls everywhere and the crazy humongous pieces of hardware. There's a scale to it, but then also a sense that every little piece is actuated by something that there's something operating every little bit of it and it all has purpose and i think that that comes across in both the visual design of the ship as well as the way that people are interacting with all the little pieces and parts and hardware from the way that you see in exterior shots of the ship as things are being you know, rotating around and being destroyed because they happen to rotate into sunlight down to the tiny, tiny micro level of the way that Kappa has to escape from the airlock that he gets himself into. And he does it by operating all these little knobs and dials and you get some director's idea of how beautiful it is from the other side of a door having a welding torch burn through the other side and you get the amazing bubbling paint so Mm, nathan's a pyro someone is uh really really thinking about the texture of this space and i think that that is where this film excels for me okay so mark tensley deliberately chose to make the spaceship messy with a lot of exposed wiring so that things when they felt tense it made them feel chaotic and uncontrolled so it's interesting that you were saying you had this like hey everybody's here it's working it feels authentic and not necessarily like oh crap this is all falling apart nothing's going well and that kind of speaks to that feeling there so interesting take on that i don't know i'm one of those people like 
if it's all going well, all the wiring should be put in the wall kind of people. So not all is well on this on this mission. So, But that was an interesting way that you said it made it feel authentic to you and that these are scientists and it felt lived in. Yeah, because as much as, you know, the actual lines, it's easy, It's very easy to nitpick the, orbit, the orbital mechanics they're talking about. None of it makes sense. But you get the sense that these are actually scientists saying these things and that they really believe it and that they approach it in the way that an actual astronaut would, even if the actual mechanics of it don't make sense. So I think that is what matters here. Ben, what do you think about the spaceship as well as how space is depicted and the exterior of the ship? How do you feel like the look of this movie feels for you? Well, getting back to what Nathan said, uh, I really like the way that the ship is specifically designed. It's not a cookie cutter spaceship. Like they really thought about what the ship needed to look like and the mission. Like the ship is specifically designed to go to the sun with that big shield that like blocks all the solar radiation that was pointing at the the one end of the ship. And then it was designed to detach away from it and blast the crew section away while the payload section went down to the sun. I thought it was brilliant. I mean, they didn't really address gravity in kind of the way some other science fiction shows like Vance. Elysium. Elysium. The recent stowaway from Netflix. Yes. They didn't really address, I guess, they have some sort of gravity situation going on there in the ship but they left some other things out too so it was it was kind of like a a mix between hard science fiction and like a space opera star trek type thing but i thought they did a a good job of balancing out the two you guys have both pointed out gravity it ended up on the editing block but when they were going to enter the icarus one they wanted the gravity systems to be jacked up and so that everything was sideways as you move through it now, they built all of these spaceships on a soundstage, which was ambitious. And so they did not have the budget, time, and work to be able to make everybody move through all that stuff sideways as well. But at least in the initial going, that's a consideration that would have been a greater part of the story that just didn't make the final cut due to budgetary concerns. Yeah, I'm very willing to forgive that. Not everybody has a budget of something like 2001 A Space Odyssey for that sort of thing. You know, it's the kind of thing that... They could have said one sentence about how the payload they're delivering has a funny thing about gravity with it, because it's sort of implied in later scenes that no matter what side of that thing, that weird cube you're standing on, that gravity is towards the cube. And I think they could have possibly said something to the effect of, yeah, that cube has a weird gravity of itself, so down is towards the payload at all times and that's what generates the gravity that would have been you know one line and it's fixed so that's my head cannon. yeah uh it's interesting danny boyle said that making this film was incredibly hard and he would never make another science fiction film i and to some degree i think that 28 days later is science fiction it's a zombie movie but it's also it is science fiction as well but he's he means in terms of hard science fiction that he said this was exhausting it took a lot out of him killian murphy in an interview said that danny is so amazingly energetic on both of them but like in 28 days later they had no money and it was very guerrilla style and they had you know had to do a lot with a little on sunshine they had more money 
but it took a lot out of Danny. He's one of those people that never sits down once he gets on the set. So he's literally running from one stage to another. He's got a hand in. They actually housed all their special effects out to one production unit, which is very unusual, so that he could have more consistency and control with that. But Danny is just one of those people who's not necessarily, I won't say he has delegation travels, but he's just, he's very involved and very energized and then there. And he's an inspiring person to be around by all accounts. But this took a lot out of him. So I feel bad for him that this movie didn't get financial returns. Honestly, even the reviews are a little bit undersold for for what this is. So uh, it's, it's unfortunate that he put his blood, sweat and tears into it and the payoff sadly wasn't there and he did vow never to do science fiction again so we'll see if he holds through that but yeah he was constantly running between the 17 sets that they had built in eight different stage buildings and stuff like that and you know being a director is a very consuming endeavor but uh you know this one this one took a toll on him that's what killian said yeah i mean as as i think i've been kind of hinting at my problems with this movie are to do with the script and not really the directing at all so i'd like to see another one from him Okay, well, so uh, you you needed a 36th script written up then and not stop at 35. I needed half the script to get thrown out and then the rest of the script developed further. Ah. I think this, tr- I, I think this movie is trying to do too many things. I think that it would be more successful if some of the elements were, were pulled into better focus. Then there have been a lot of comparisons. Danny Boyle mentioned that he took influences from 2001 A Space Odyssey Tarkovsky's Solaris from 1972 and Alien from 1979. Do you see those movies influencing this movie in in any way? I think the tone of the movie in the setting definitely are influenced by those movies. You can tell just the tenor, the tempo, the way that the characters interact. Although Sunshine kind of takes a a hard right from those but i think you can definitely see the influences of those movies in the in sunshine i felt like there were some scenes where the crew was like talking when that whether they were just eating together on a spaceship whether it be the dynamics of what happens to the crew when the leader goes kind of things and as well as there's a there's a there's a hint of horror component in this i definitely strong most strongly saw the comparison to alien i don't think mm-hmm. this is as necessarily artistic or abstract or ambitious as 2001 was maybe it's because because i watched uh, tree of life like the next day but nathan what about you do you see those influences coming through you make the comparison to alien this to me is a lot like if the alien hadn't come aboard until the last act yeah and honestly it does take a long time for the alien to come aboard comparatively in that movie too yeah it's it's a different there's more suspense being built in that movie I liked how the end was Sydney was covered in snow. So that shows you just how cold the sun had gotten. It was really cool. You know, it's got to be one of those areas of the world where you get any kind of snow at all and they close all the schools for like two months. <laughs> it wasn't as profound as the Statue of Liberty head in Planet of the Apes, but it was, right. uh, it was still like, oh, it really is cold kind of moments. In terms of the wardrobe, uh, obviously the spacesuit's going to come up right away. Ben, do you like... The golden spacesuits. Yeah, I got a real Dune vibe from that. Mm. Like the uh, the 80s Dune version. I really like those suits. I really did. That was probably the high, the set design for me. 
I just want to come back to the suits. I think that those are the coolest space suits in any film, science fiction film that I've seen. They look like someone designed them very specifically to be able to survive in sunlight. And it really pains me that it turned out that they didn't actually protect anybody from direct sun exposure. From anything. But they yeah. looked good when they were burning up. They and have, that's they, what counts. Yeah. What's the point of having this really complicated special spacesuit? It doesn't actually do anything special. Well, despite what we see with Harvey freezing, I believe it's hot even not directly in the sun's rays. So I believe that shield is good. That nope. that, that umbrella like not true. Oh. <laughs> so Parker Solar Probe recently launched uh sun study probe of the most recent variety is essentially a small scale version of this spaceship and it operates with a sun shield in front of it and that sun shield takes all the heat everything else if it's not in direct sunlight is exchanging radiation with the regular background like everything else so well, those see yeah, i was just gonna yeah. say i was just gonna say there's ambient heat that's not on top of the shield but i thought behind the shield had to be there's at least no somewhat hot to too, hold but, uh, it you popped a hole in my bubble then so uh there you go neil degrasse tyson played by nathan lutz i will happily pass on my uh my knowledge from watching the youtuber scott manley <laughs> i thought i also like the beginning where we see chris evans is really shaggy i see you see that there's a sense that this crew has all been out there for a good solid six months. You see a little bit of, I won't say chippiness, but there's a cabin fever component to it. And somehow there are moments in the wardrobe that show you that these guys have been here for a while. You got a comment close to the beginning, which I thought was kind of funny. After the fight that Chris Evans's character starts, he's being led out of the medical bay by the doctor who, as a closing line, says, all right, and by the way, please get a haircut. I mean, yeah. these guys are letting this, these guys are letting themselves go in a very familiar way. So you know, it did predict many things, and that's one of them. Now, did you guys like the fact that we don't see Pin Becker very directly? The most we see of him is through that portal when Killian Murphy's character Kappa is, you know, locks himself at kind of in a dead end kind of condition, and we see at least some eyes and a nose clearly. Every time else you see Pinbecker, it's blurred. It's not in focus. It's uh, silhouetted. It's There's a number of tricks that they use to never show Pinbecker directly. Obviously, he's deformed by the amount of sun he's been taking in. But did you like that presentation, Ben? I thought it added something, but it was kind of strange. Um, you never get to see him clearly. Does it make him scarier? Of course. Not to see the main antagonist fully visualized. So you're forced, to see, as the viewer, you're forced to, like, impose your own fears and impressions upon him, I guess. Yeah, it makes it more scary. But I thought it was pretty effective. It's interesting they took, so there's a real-life F1 pole racer named uh, Nicky Lauda. If you've seen the movie Rush from 2013, he's... He's one of the two main drivers that the movie focuses on. And his deformed burns were an influence for what they used for Pinbacker. Oh, so. how gruesome. Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's a true to life, sad situation. So, yeah, it's uh, no fun getting burned, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, if something like that 
quite that degree to happen to me, I would try to cosplay as Darth Vader for Ever After. Yeah. Uh, I would just go with the Michael Jackson tons and tons of surgeries that would make me come out and look completely different, but I can still moonwalk. <laughs> Are there any other special effects moments that you really wanted to call out, Ben? I really liked that when the two ships were maneuvering next to one another. And, of course, when they were the main Icarus 2 was maneuvering and the uh, sun was coming up over the shield. That was cool. Yep. Yeah. It's manipulated computer lighting, but it's still very dramatic lighting. Yeah. Yeah. It feels very much like you are a very, very tiny camera that is stuck at the end of a flamethrower and seeing the f- gigantic flames whip up around you on all sides. It's pretty spectacular. It's a, it's a pretty awesome shot that really, it, it really sells the fear and, and terror of what they're flying into. Reminds me of a Star Trek episode where Picard's girlfriend gets trapped on the surface. I liked the choice to have the dust inside the Icarus one from where the crew members were ignited. Like that, that just had a real creepy... Like, they based it on, like, the ruins that you've seen from Pompeii. I felt that. There was a sense of death that came with all that that dust of the decayed. And they said this was human matter, which, that's always scary. Yeah, someday, you know, if if you're ever walking around, like, a dusty construction site or something, please do not start the day by saying, by the way, 80% of all dust is actually human skin. That's just not, that's just going to ruin your day afterwards. It's all downhill from there. Ben. What do you think about the music of Sunshine? It was nice. It was enjoyable. Although the and when it came to Pinbecker, I thought it was really intense. It was that dramatic synthesizer, hard scored music. Mm-hmm. I thought it might have been overdone because you always kind of get that dramatic score like that whenever the villain is there. I thought maybe they could have done something a little different. But overall, it was a hit with me. I felt like it was uh, there were a lot of moments where the power of the sun is a humbling experience. Yeah. This, this movie, this music had that feel for me. It's kind of funny. The penultimate background score of the Diageo in D minor, which I'm sure Nathan will uh, know better than I do, but it's it, it's apparently used as well in Kick-Ass and in Wonder Woman 1984. So it did feel familiar. <laughs> okay nathan put us to shame and with your orchestral knowledge uh what did you think of the soundtrack here i mean i am not gonna say too much on this this is to me a pretty ser- sort of serviceable functional score it it gives you i think the best that the best thing that it accomplishes for me is that it really sells the sense of urgency in a lot of these scenes where, for example, as they're rotating the, the sun shield back towards the sun and someone's still on it, the captain's still on this, oh no, and the medical officer for some reason asks, what are you? What do you see? You obviously know what he's seeing. He's seeing the sun that's about to kill him. But anyway, side tangent, the really cool sort of timpani-sounding crescendo into a couple of sort of you know heartbeat-esque thuds that are you know selling that timer that urgency that you need to move you need to move and that there's something really foreboding coming after you i think that to me that's where the score really excels as i think has been sort of alluded to there really aren't too many memorable themes that are brought up in this some sort of 
melodic notes here and there that aren't really repeated themes that don't really again there are too many characters to really develop any recognizable leitmotifs for any of them but for those scenes when the urgency is felt it really succeeds nice ready to hand out some awards ben let's do it all right mvp ben it's a toss-up but i'm gonna go with kappa he was my favorite so killian murphy gets your mvp now, Nathan, who gets your MVP? I'm going to give it to the VFX team. I think that the thing that sells this movie to me is the incredible sequences that you get when they're outside the ship looking at the shield, when you can see these amazing fires. There's a particular moment when, of course, Corazon is trying to get to her precious plants and you see the fire erupt all around her. There's the amazing sort of particle effects of coming off of the, the ship's shield, which are just really, really cool as, uh, as and, and right up until the final moment as we're delivering the payload and you get this really poetic visual image of this guy standing in between the natural sun bursting in on one side and the sparkles of scientific advancement on behind him and it's pretty cool all right and uh, it's no surprise here i'm gonna go with alex garland he does a great job of writing a compelling science fiction story with the very interesting human dynamics of how people would behave in this situation and mix that in with you know he has a great ability for a strong sense of suspense and that's going to make it all exciting there's a certain stamp, as Ben said, that Alex Garland has, and I like it. So Alex Garland gets my MVP. Ben, who's your best supporting? Michelle Yeoh. All right. So Michelle Yeoh and Corazon, any reason? I just loved her tremendous understatement, I would say, because she's just like this bright, shining actress, and she just did such a wonderful job. But like you said, it was very understated and in the background, but... I thought she did a great job. Mm-hmm. Nathan, what about you? Who's your best supporting? I'm going to go with, and this might be sort of an interesting direction to go, but Hiroyuki Sanada, who is the captain at the beginning of the movie of the Icarus 2. I think that his performance is the part of this that made me feel most like this was actually a crew, actually a group that was operating in a different way than we would expect sort of a typical movie ship's crew of democratic people to be acting but also it coming across as totally reasonable and sort of thoughtful in all these ways and i think that he does a really great job of selling early on the idea that you know maybe the captains of these voyages are a little bit obsessive and ahabish about the sun and so later when it turns out that one of the other captains has gone over has gotten a little bit too much sun you look at it and say yeah okay i i i maybe believe that and i think that that comes down a lot to hiroyuki sanada's acting here in this role very good choice there i was gonna go with michelle yo as ben did with corazon she was awesome but just for variety's sake i because you covered it so well I want to call out uh, Chris Evans did a great job in the role of Mace as well. He made a lot of interesting things happen through this. He's obviously a great supporting character, and uh, he did a good job of performing him as well. So I'm going to go with Chris Evans in this case. Ben, uh, this is a hard movie to do Hidden Gym with. There's not a lot of insulary characters, but is there any elements or any people that you want to give a Hidden Gym to? I'm going to go with 
the onboard computer of the Icarus 2. All right. Right. Yeah. Right there. One of the main interactions between Cassie and the computer when they were trying to readjust the course of the Icarus 2 or keep it on manual and the computer wanted to readjust. They had some confrontation there. But I think it's always undersold, like the computer interaction and the ship interaction in movies like this. Yeah, I thought the computer did a good job in this. Voiced by Chipo Chung. Nathan, who's your hidden gem? Or what is your hidden gem? And it is indeed what in this case. And I'm going to call out the amazing sense of plant life and the explosion of life on the Icarus 1 that happens. It's very cool to see something where early in the movie you get a wonderful sense of how much Michelle Yeoh's character is, you know, really in love with creating this garden in the middle of space and the importance of life on these ships beyond just the human actors. And it's so cool to see this other ship portrayed this way. And I kind of wish that we'd gotten a scene where maybe Michelle Yeoh's character was actually part of the expedition over there because maybe she needed to examine the oxygen garden. And what if she wanted to stay on the other ship or something? That would have been a really cool thing that her character could have explored. Again, I think that it could have made it really interesting to see a character who does find these things so important experience what is really this amazing thing. And unfortunately, a different character who did still find it amazing was the one that experienced that. But I just thought that that shot and that set was quite cool. I'm going to take a similar note to you, but just a different element. I'm going to go with the tiny little plant in Corazon's hand. The persistence of life and which is an element of what we see here uh the sun is dying on on us and we sent the ship out and in a way the odds aren't that great that that little tiny plant is an element of life uh finds a way as jeff goldblum (laughs) would say in jurassic park so Uh, uh. do you think if we uh explored you know got a chance to have a couple more scenes with that character talking that we might ever have a situation where she says something like uh why am i out here i'm not out here to save humanity i'm i'm out here to save all the plants that are dying out there Oh, she is definitely set up to be in Silent Running. I don't know if you've seen that movie, Nathan, but she's primed to star in that movie, <laughs> Silent Running. So, yeah, I, got, I definitely got a vibe off of uh, Bruce Dern's character from that movie. Yeah, off yeah. Of her. What, what, if, what if that was the kind of villain it was? Someone didn't want the mission to fail completely. They just didn't want it to succeed immediately. And they wanted the ship to be a kind of arc and they would take the surviving plant life back to Earth. What if that was the direction? Maybe she needs three cute droid companions, though. Ben, you like cute droids? <laughs> I do. And I think they already made that movie. It's called Silent Running. I th- that's where I was poking you towards, for sure. Yeah, yeah, okay. I get it now. <laughs> uh, ben, if you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place, who would you recast? I would recast your boy Chris Evans. I'm sorry, but... Meat Meathead has to go. Oh, I mean, he's he's just. But he's the Human Torch. He can just fly into the sun. Yeah, he didn't bring anything particularly great. His performance was standard. I'm. I mean, he's 
great to look at, but he didn't do anything spectacular for me. Who do you think would bring more life to the role for you? The guy from Black Panther, but he's dead. So. Well, he wasn't then, so we can certainly... Uh, Chadwick Boseman? Chadwick Boseman. Okay. Well, he's a good actor, so I can't argue with that choice. So subbing out Captain America for Black Panther, I'll allow that. Nathan, what about you? What, who's your recast? You know, I think that's a fantastic choice. And you know what? I'm sorry, Russell, but I'm doing the same sort of thing. I just found that Chris Evans' performance was taking a character that, you know, wasn't the most interesting character in the world, but playing it in a very, very plain, very uh, functional way that I I just didn't appreciate against some of the actors here. So I'm actually going to go in a di- in a different direction to a show that, Ben, you and I are just enamored with. This is The Expanse, and I'm going to go with John West Chatham, who plays Amos on The Expanse and who is a much more interesting character of that nature, someone who's very functional-oriented, who comes across, depending on which side you're on, as either incredibly terrible or terrifying or someone who just has your back no matter what. And it's because, you know, if you're on the wrong side of his moral code, he's terrifying he will come after you but if you're on the right side and john west chatham sells that character in a way which is just incredible and inhabits in a way that i think i would really i would really like to see him get a chance to 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 play this particular role ah okay see i identify a lot with the character of may so this probably is part of me connecting with the performance as well there so um yeah if I, if I were anybody on the ship i think i would be mace sorry so i agree so if you screw up your calculations i will literally kill you <laughs> i mean but i have a reason it's not just because i'm a sociopath like i mean it's all it's all for the mission so <laughs> yeah exactly more that you're a sociopath uh but it's all for the mission <laughs> all right so uh my recast uh, i'm not gonna go after chris evans i'm gonna go after uh tom garrity who played harvey i felt like he was the weak link and what is a very strong cast and maybe it's because we talked about nikki lauda the f1 pole racer but the actor who plays him daniel brule from the movie rush uh he's also in goodbye lennon and you might know him from captain america civil war where he's the villain character in that as well I find that he would do this conceited, arrogant, I matter more than you kind of moment, this, that insecurity that's in him. I, I, also a good actor, by the way. I just think that he would bring more to the role. So I'm coming after Harvey there. And by the way, if you can find Oscar Isaac a seat in this, add another character if you need to, because Oscar Isaac's awesome. I'm, I'm sad he didn't get a part. Ben, best shot. What's your favorite shot of this movie? When they're all sitting in the viewing room and they see mercury for the first time nice that's a and it's just like yeah that's another one of those humbling moments in the movie yeah nathan best shot the moment when michelle yo's character corazon is trying to get to the oxygen garden as it's consumed by flame and she's in this glass corridor vestibule surrounded by it and it's just she's totally surrounded by the burning up explosion of her oxygen garden and it's terribly sad and also quite beautiful at the same time Mm, that's that was totally my pick as well and that's that's a great choice 
just just for variety's sake again uh i'm gonna give a nod to because that is my favorite shot of the movie for sure i'm gonna give a nod to killian murphy in slow-mo reaching out into the sun it's a you know that's that moment where meeting that the power of god there kind of moment and again that was an artistic moment that made me scratch my head at first but it also made me think and once i started the movie it started to make more sense or at least that was my interpretation so i'm gonna go with that best scene ben the suicide yeah that was a that was a heavy moment when trey it was heavy but again it was it meant something yeah it was noble yeah noble for sure i like trey's character and obviously his sacrifice makes you like him all the more he's too hard on himself we all make mistakes yeah nathan what about you what's your best scene I got to go with the first EVA scene in the movie when they take those suits out for the first spin. You get to see the amazing gold suits. And this is a scene where there is character conflict, but it feels very natural. And it feels like they're actually all driving towards something that's realistic. You get a really cool interplay between they need to fix the ship and they're in real danger and they need to do it in a very short period of time. And you get this amazing, it starts out with exploration in the dark and with essentially flashlights trying to figure out what's gone wrong. And then you get them figuring out what they need to do. They get to start working with the very, then as I kind of mentioned earlier, the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty of the ship, you see them working with these hydraulic actuators and you actually get to see the hydraulic actuator and that it's burnt out and that sort of thing. And then you get to see them pushing the plates of the sun shield back into proper alignment and all of this with this crazy visual effect of the reflective sun shield and the really cool image of the sort of atmosphere of fire that's being kicked up off of this shield as it's being re-exposed to sunlight it's it's just a great scene all around yeah really good choice there Uh, i'm gonna go with the airlock scene where four members of the icarus 2 are stuck on the icarus 1 when they know they have to return to the icarus 2 and it's been sabotaged by penbecker but we don't know that at the time and you see suspicions rising. You see smart people being smart to MacGyver their way out of the situation. Probably Neil deGrasse Tyson and Nathan are ready to come at me and explain why that none of this works. But no, that does work. Oh, okay. I, it, well, that makes it even better then. But I mean, I really enjoyed this as well as it comes down to another one of those noble moments of having to sacrifice oneself. And I just liked everything about the scene. It was tense. It looked like three of them might have a shot of making it. And then... Harvey bounces off and goes into space. I'd like to say I was sad, but because it was Harvey, I wasn't, I was like, eh, maybe Harvey should have stayed to open the shaft up just so we have a chance to keep Searle around. But yeah, I, I, I still really like the scene. The stakes are high and the character development is good. And at this point, I, I like the exchanges between these characters here at this point. So that's my scene in the movie. Um, it's a little mini climax. It gets buried by some of the action that kicks in later. But uh, for me, Upon returning to it, this this scene sticks out. Ben, best wardrobe moment. I'm going to say give it up to new space attire. Just like Kappa in his base chic attire. Like, we're looking at, we're used to, like, normal, like, Star Trek, 
stuffy uniforms that they wear in space. But they kind of, like, break the mold, and they're just wearing their, like, you know, jean things and their sweats and hanging out in space. So I'm going to go best wardrobe in just regular space attire. It's Casual Friday on the Icarus. Casual Friday in space. Yeah. I like it. And Kappa uh, with his Johnny Resnick haircut there. So, uh, Nathan, best wardrobe and makeup moment. I've mentioned it several times how much I love these things, but it's that suit design that is just so cool. With the, it, it feels very much like you're in a realistically scaled Iron Man suit that would actually protect you from anything. And they look ostentatious as anything. It's very funny in, in a certain way, the way they look. But I just love that design. I think that it really gives you a sense of being protected. Yeah. And you know, uh, apparently part of the costume design actually looked and took influence from this. Cause I did think of, think it at the time, but they took influence from Kenny from South park. Really? Yeah. Like with that shielding that is, of the face, that huh. cone kind of nice. Th- yeah. yeah so, that is so funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, they, they kind of use it as influence. And I did say, I was like, I see a lot of Kenny from South park in this. And then I later read, it, I was like, well, that's what they wanted. So they got it. <laughs> Yeah, I felt it in the moment. So, you know, my my best wardrobe makeup moment is going to go to Penbecker. We don't get a good look at him, but that that the clip of him is very frightening when he's on uh, the the image of him where he's talking about how we've challenged God and, you know, we're foolish to do so. And also when his face goes right up against the portal that I mentioned earlier, they're scary. He's a scary looking dude. And they did a good job to make him look really scary. So that's my best moment. The brief glimpses we get of him really tell us that we would be very scared to see any more. Yes. And he's, I think he's walking around naked the whole time. So he's all. Also that. Also scary. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Change one thing, Ben. I would say the fact that it worked, the oversimplistic nature of it. So you want them to fail and the worst is still cold and they have to send Icarus 3? I mean, it can be a Greek tragedy, right? Wow. Ben thinks that humans deserve to be frozen to death in this and that the sun should go out. Ben wants to urge on the movie Snowpiercer, also starring Chris Evans. So (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't always have to work, but is it a little too Disney? Yes, that it worked. I don't know. I don't think it's Disney. The protagonist dies in the end. The whole crew's dead. They sacrifice themselves. I don't, I don't know. It's, know. It's, 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 it's Disney made Rogue One. <laughs> yeah. It is Rogue One. Okay, so so you're going darker. You're going more like, okay, the, the Greek tragedy. Now, Nathan, what about you? What changed one thing? You know, before we talked, I had this rather nitpicky, let's fix the orbital dynamics note on here that, you know, maybe the Icarus ships were going to end up in orbit of the sun like true orbit and would drop the payload from there and that's why the Icarus one was sort of kind of stopped in its path and that they could sort of kind of rendezvous rendezvous with it in a way that made sense but now that we've been talking I just want to expound on something I mentioned earlier and what Ben just said because what if the way that this happened is that Michelle Yeoh's character went over to Icarus one 
and wanted to stay because the plants were that way. And then the Igris 2 tries and fails with its bomb and gets one last message out to her that explains what went wrong and how she needs to fix the second bomb. And then she takes that one in and it succeeds. Hmm, interesting. So you you guys are going for some big changes here. <laughs> Mine's going to be more of a stylistic change. I, I like much of what Danny Boyle did in this movie, but there's one thing I didn't particularly care for. When they're approaching the sun and they're in the payload, there's a moment of skippy frozen camera work as they're sliding around the payload and gravity is in play it's going for disorienting and it is i felt like it pulled me out of the action a little bit with that skippy stop stuff i feel like you can blur the camera you can you can move it around as if one is losing consciousness in in this extreme situation i didn't get the effect that i think that they were going for there so too abrupt too sharp just Work on that feeling of what it's like as you approach the sun more. Yeah. Yeah, that was a confusing scene that, again, if you had a line anywhere in the movie that mentioned about how gravity should behave around the cube in, a, in an interesting way, I think that that scene could have made a lot more interesting sense. Mm-hmm. Nathan, what's your best quote? You know, I don't think that the script has any really good quotes in it. I think that this script is entirely serviceable and this movie is good because of the VFX. So I'm going to go for something that Randall Monroe wrote in the XKCD webcomic because I mentioned it earlier and I think it's just hilarious and better than any one line of this whole movie. It's daylight savings time. Never fall back. Okay. My best quote's going to go for when... Mace said, we should split up. And Harvey's like, I'm not sure that's a good idea. And Mace just sarcastically says, you're probably right. We might get picked off one at a time by aliens. There was a distinct alien vibe here. So I thought that that was a little small self-aware moment that I liked. Yeah, I thought that, I, I thought that was a funny line. I wish that it was supported by more funny lines from characters who are more human and generally funny. Okay. Uh, ben, do you have a best quote? Yes. So if you wake up one morning and it's a particularly beautiful day, you know we made it. Okay. I'm signing out. That's that's a great one. That's that's that's, 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 that's what the movie goes out right? on, yeah. I did like the dialogue. It's not one quote between Icarus and Kappa where, you know, she says, You're all dying and he goes, What? No, we're fine. And she was no, you don't have enough oxygen to deliver the payload. And he's like, please clarify. <laughs> and he's like, we have enough oxygen for four people. Yeah, but there's five people on the board. No, Trey killed himself. Affirmative. <laughs> it's like this like logic-based program and him not realizing there's somebody who shouldn't be here on there. So that was an incredibly tense moment. So I liked that whole dialogue as well. Ben, it's come full circle. On a five-star scale, what would you give Sunshine with half-star intervals? I would give it a 4.5. I think it's a really powerful science fiction movie. It talks a lot about the environment and man's place in the universe. And I think it didn't get it shot that it should have. So you feel like it's justified to be on all those top 100 science fiction movies lists that you oh, see? Oh, definitely. It should be in everybody's top, I would say, top 30, I would think. Wow. So that's high praise then. Nathan, how about you? 
I don't think that it would make it into one of my lists quite that high. I I will charitably give this a 2.5. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 2.5. You, wow, yeah. You did hold back. I, I detected there was some displeasure there, but uh, you did a great job to find the good things in this movie. So we, you made for a good conversation on that for sure. But yeah, 2.5. So um, you mentioned before that the human experience wasn't as that, that connection wasn't there for you that it was an ex machina is that the main thing that's driving this for you yeah i think i mentioned earlier i think this movie has too many characters and too many things going on for what it's trying to do and i think that if you took out some of the somewhat forced character conflicts that happened towards the beginning with mace and maybe either you know actually focused on this idea of those character conflicts actually growing naturally into something that resulted in the previous Icarus's demise instead of coming out of left field with a, this guy went just completely crazy sort of thing. I think it would have been a much more interesting film. Like if this was a movie where the thing that was different between the two crews was that one of the crews was able to work together where the other one tore itself apart and failed. Like what if there was, some discovery of the previous crew those conflicts went too far and this crew learned from that and succeeded because they were able to t get theirs under control when it really needed to and true they did bring it under control when they needed to but the fact that the movie never focused on any one of those elements and brings out this insane character in the last third of the movie I just think that it keeps it very unfocused. If you're going to write a movie that is soft sci-fi like this, be more particular, in my opinion, about what you're actually bringing into your script. So that I, I really do think that about half this script could have been sort of replaced in the other half, which is quite, you know, there's really good, interesting things and ideas in this movie. Um, I think the other half could have been great if it was allowed to breathe well you certainly backed it up and justified it. and in fairness to you a lot of the critics noted the fact that it kind of turns into a slasher horror movie at the end and yeah. some people felt disappointed that the first two-thirds of the movie were so good and they felt like they didn't like the tone shift at the end now personally that's those are two things they like and it all goes together well and in the spirit of alien and and things that I like, I was still happy with this. So I'm going to join Ben on the fanboy wagon and give this a 4.5 as well. I I really enjoyed it, and I will be watching it and recommending it to other people who are not Nathan again. Um, so um, It's not too deep and uh, makes you feel good at the end. Everybody does die, so. Everyone, well, yeah. But the sun comes out, so. they do They do save the day, so. They do save the day. Nathan, will you help me pick a movie for next time? I will wrestle. So we're going to the Wild West. Are you ready? I am. Hooting and hollering and ready to go. Option number one, True Grit, the John Wayne one from 1969. A drunken, hard-nosed U.S. Marshal and a Texas Ranger help a stubborn teenager track down her father's murder in Indian Territory. Option two, Silverado from 1985. A bunch of misfit friends come together to right the injustices which exist in a small town. Option three, The Cowboys from 1972. 
Rancher Will Anderson is forced to hire inexperienced boys as co-hands in order to get his herd to market on time, but the rough drive is full of dangers and a gang of cattle rustlers is trailing them. You know what, Russell? I think we're going to have to go with Silverado. All right. Silverado it is. And Ben, thank you so much for joining us for Sunshine. Hey, it was my pleasure, guys. Or sorry, third time guest. We really appreciate that. Yeah. We'd like you to reach out to us. We want to subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Emails at retro movie roundtable at yahoo.com. And providing and producing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. Any contributions will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other. And watch more movies. Nathan? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one.